All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again John Williams, uh, Walter John Williams, known as John Williams. Uh, there's another Walter Williams, uh, a, a black gentleman, of a, a free market advocate, uh, somebody that I uh, admire as well, but really glad to have uh, John Williams. Uh, he is the head of the, uh, actually writes and is the editor of Shadow Stats. Uh, it's shadowstats.com is where you should go. I subscribe to this uh, letter and have. If you're interested in ongoing economics, not from the mainstream, but from a truth teller, uh, John Williams, shadowstats.com is a must read. And uh, we want to ask John about some of the, the latest missives that he's put out and where he thinks the, uh, the U.S. economy is right now. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with John, uh, he uh, received his uh, degree in economics, uh, a bachelor's degree in economics, uh, graduate cum laude from Dartmouth College in 1971. Uh, and he had a, an MBA from Dartmouth as well back in 1972. And he is... Uh, uh, his his uh, his career as during his career as a consulting economist, John has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies for more than 25 years. He has uh, been a private consulting economist out of necessity. He became a specialist in government economic reporting, and we're really thankful that he has because there's not too many people that are looking under the hood when it comes to government statistics. It seems as though people are these days are willing to believe the government whatever it tells us, uh, and that I think is as we've heard from other people on this show. Uh, today and else, other times, it's a pretty, a pretty dangerous thing to do to believe uh, everything your government tells you. But anyway, he, John, learned uh, virtually uh, all economic stocks uh, stats that are quoted by the United States government are spun uh, using optimistic assumptions, and so that's what we want to talk to uh, John about today. Thanks, John, for coming back. Uh, thank you for having me, Jay. Really good to have you. Uh, you know, I just want to read over a couple of the headlines that came out of your most recent missives. On August 26th, uh, you put out something, uh, the headline that said, In ongoing stagnation, durable goods orders are suggestive of pending downturn. you suggesting we're ready to go back down into another recession, or did we ever really come out of one, John? Never came out of it. Um, this oh, is that's a- not what we're told, though. No. Well, it, let me put it this way. If you look at the official reporting of the gross domestic product, which is the broadest measure the government puts out on the economy. Um, What you'll see is that the economy started to turn down at the end of uh, uh, 2007. It uh, crashed through 2008 into the middle of 2009 and then turned up again. And it has kept going higher ever since. And uh, at the end of uh, 2000, the middle of 2011, 
it uh, went above where it had been before the recession, which is a full recovery. It's now 4% above that, uh, which normally would be fine news. The only problem is there's no other major economic series that, that shows the same pattern. The mm-hmm. GDP is uh, a theoretical construct put together in academia that has a little relationship to the real world and the changes they've made it, made to it over the years have um, really made it more of a propaganda machine to overstate economic uh, economic growth. What you'll see is that if you look at series um, that are independent of, of inflation, and the problem here is the way the government reports and handles the inflation, you, you look at the uh, housing starts, for example, uh, or the new home sales that were just out this last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you'll see what happened there is that the economy really began turning down, slowing in 2005 into 2006. The problems in the housing industry um, uh, really led to the downturn. Then you had the financial crisis in uh, 2008, which was related to the housing. That exacerbated the downturn. Uh, the economy crashed into the middle of 2009, but it never recovered. It's just been bottom bouncing. It's been it's been stagnant. And I, I talk with a lot of people in the uh, real real business world who sell products to consumer uh, consumers who see that 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 pattern in their sales. They're not seeing a, a, a strong recovery here. Oh. What what happens with inflation um, in terms of the gross domestic product, for example? Um, they, they, they try to back inflation out of it because when you're looking at the growth in the economy, you're not trying to see how much uh, the economy was boosted by, in, by inflation because as prices rise, uh, so, so, so do sales. But rather, they, they try and take the inflation effect out so that what's left over is actual economic growth. Um, if they underestimate the uh, inflation, they mm-hmm. end up overstating economic growth, and that's what's happened here. Um, because of changes, methodological changes made to the uh, inflation numbers over time that were very deliberate, uh, aimed at reducing um, the uh, reported rate of inflation um, for, for, for consumers, um, and 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 this was this was started back in the uh, 80s. It it received a lot of press in the early 90s, and we're seeing some press again today. When the average person looks at inflation, or a measure of inflation, they're they're thinking that they're looking at, okay, this is my cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living. If I'm going to use this inflation number as a target for my investments or uh, as a guide for how much my income should go up, I I want to at least be even uh, with where I was last year. That's the way it was um, over literally hundreds of years of estimating consumer price indexes. Mm-hmm. Uh, come the 1990s, um, Alan Greenspan and uh, then Michael uh, Bob, Michael Boskin, who's then head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors under Bush, uh, started saying that the, oh, gee, the CPI overstates inflation. If only we had a more accurate measure, it would... Uh, what would help us with the economy because, or with the budget deficit, because then we wouldn't have to increase uh, Social Security cost of living adjustments as much, and, and that would help cut the, the, the budget deficit. Well, that was the motivation, was to cut the mm-hmm. budget deficit without anyone in Congress having to do the uh, physically yeah. impossible task of, or politically impossible task of voting against Social Security. 
And uh, so what they did was uh, we say, oh, my goodness, well, how, how is uh, how's inflation overstated? And Mr. Greenspan's response would be, well, you know, steak goes up in price. People will buy more hamburger. If they buy, buy more hamburger, then their cost of living isn't as high. Uh, but that's not reflected in the CPI. Well, it wasn't very simply because that's not the concept of uh, the cost of uh, living of maintaining a constant standard of living. They, they, yeah. they, they, they destroyed the whole concept of the CPI with their, their redefinitions, and they added in a, a variety of uh, uh, computer models that fabricate um, price reductions due to uh, quality improvements that can't be measured. That they can estimate them with their with their uh, computer models, but nobody recognizes them. So the effect there, and, and, and you get you use different measures with different uh, 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 different inflation measures with, with different economic series. With a gross domestic product, they they use what they call the implicit price deflator, and there's been roughly two percentage points that's been knocked off that per year uh, due to what they call hedonic quality adjustments. Mm-hmm as far as I'm concerned, should not be there. You take those out and you look at what happens to the GDP reporting, what it shows is that the economy started turning down 2005, 2006, crashed into 2009, and has been bottom-bouncing ever since. The same thing happens with retail sales if you uh, uh, adjust them adequately for inflation. Uh, You'll see the same pattern with industrial production. It actually has some inflation components uh, built into it. Uh, You take them out. Even though the industrial production never recovered, you have more of that bottom-bouncing pattern. The economy mm-hmm. has not recovered. There's a good Sorry. reason the economy has not recovered, and there's a reason why the economy is not about to recover. And, and that is that the consumer is in uh, a, a terrible uh, uh, mm-hmm. liquidity circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, one of the interesting things, John, if I might just uh, interrupt, uh, from your statistics and from your charts that you show, uh, it really struck me. If you look at, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the GDP adjusted for the real inflation rate, the one that you use, it's consistent with the past, and these other series as well. But one of the things that really struck me was the fact that the consumer confidence charts look an awful lot like the real charts, that you, the, uh, the adjusted charts you're talking about. Oh, indeed they do. And um, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of confirmation in, in the real world. I mean, if you, you talk to uh-huh. large corporations, and, and, and if you can get them to talk about their, their, the sales, of, of their consumer products and, and look at those on an inflation-adjusted basis, even on a not inflation-adjusted basis. Their pattern, their, what they're seeing with their sales is much closer to what we're showing with the adjusted uh, numbers. And indeed, you're right, the uh, consumer confidence numbers, um, there's a, uh, an estimate of uh, household, um, median household income um, that's put out by a company called Centier Research. These are two guys mm-hmm. who came out of the Census Bureau. They put out uh, numbers on a monthly basis that, that use, the, use the Census Department numbers, and what they show is that median household income, um, instead of recovering when the economy turned up, uh, uh, continued to, to, to plummet. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, they continued to plummet into the last couple of years, and now it's just, it, it's just bottom bouncing. There are a lot of series that will show that. Yeah. Um, and it, that confirms the, the actual general broad trend in the economy. I'll also yeah. give you a, 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 a bit of thinking that would suggest that the uh, Main Street USA is much closer to uh, reality than, than Washington is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to when George Bush the first was up for re-election, he was in a circumstance where the economy was uh, in recession. Yeah. <clears throat> Senior person at the Commerce Department went to someone in the computer industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Said, look, we've got to get George re-elected. What do we do here? And what they did was they increased the reporting of computer sales to the Bureau of Economic Analysis. That's the agency that puts out the GDP reporting. Uh-huh. Uh, this was done um, external to the to the uh, uh, to the BEA. Mm-hmm. But the effect was that it boosted the GDP. <laughs> now, <clears throat> President uh, Bush, you know, said, "Well, I guess we've got have an economic recovery." Yeah. The public response was he was out of touch with reality. Yeah. And um, there, there's a nice thing about um, the United States. The average, the average guy will listen to what, what comes out of Washington. But if it doesn't make sense, I, I find most people just sort of dismiss it as being politics. Yeah. And, and they're right more often than not. The average guy has a much better sense of what's happening to the economy and inflation uh, than the government has in its actual reporting. Yeah, well, so uh, the average person has to make ends meet, and as you point out, uh, the real, uh, how much have real uh, wages declined, John, over the last, say, say since Lehman Brothers? So they're still declining since the Lehman Brothers, since 2008, 2009, right? <clears throat> well, they've sort of bottomed out at a cycle low. Sort of bouncing, bouncing around they're, they're, the bottom. When you look at the annual numbers, which the Census Bureau puts out, um, the median household income adjusted for the consumer price index, this is the government's official um, CPIU, the, the headline number. Yeah. It's below where it was in 1967. And, and that, that shocks people. I mean, how, how yeah. could that possibly be? Okay, yeah. <clears throat> well, what, what people fail to forget, but if they, if they think about it, it makes some sense, was that... Um, Back in the early 70s when we floated the dollar, <clears throat> our trade deficit uh, started going to hell. Actually, it was well on its way at that point. But the effect was uh, we began to lose uh, higher-paying production jobs mm-hmm. to offshore competition. Mm-hmm. The effect was that it, uh, it, it drove down um, individual income. And if you look at, uh, this is a series published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, using their own inflation measures, the um, average weekly earnings of um, production uh, workers um, peaked in something like 1972, 1973. That never recovered. It's, it's, it's been um, stagnant since the uh, inflation numbers were uh, were gimmicked, but if you put in actual inflation numbers, you'll see that the it's <clears throat> you've continued to have the decline there. What happened was that the back in the seventies, where it was much more common that with a an, an average household, um, the husband would go to work and the mother would stay at home with the children. Um, that, that 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 there was a change that was forced there. Where now it's much more common to have uh, two or more people. Um, working in a household. Sure, sure. But they, they still can't make ends meet. Yeah. And, and, and that's because <clears throat> incomes continue to drop 
and generally the 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 average person uh, is uh, not able to match inflation and if he can't match inflation he can't support the economy that the average right. consumer male or female um and unless there's uh, real growth in income, and I'm talking uh, in, uh, income re- real here, meaning meaning inflation adjusted, you can't have growth in real consumption. Right. Income drives consumption. That's basic. Sure. Uh, consumption accounts, the personal consumption uh, accounts for more than seventy percent of the GDP. Now, <clears throat> I'm sorry. John, John, I would just like to ask you, you know, what you're talking about is the average person in America is losing their purchasing power. Their wages aren't, you know, first of all, the nominal wages are, are in decline, I believe, in many cases. As you pointed out, the good jobs have left. Yep. Secondly, you know, so you have hamburger flippers at McDonald's or whatever, as opposed to jobs or, or people working at Walmart, as, uh, you know, whatever they do there. And, um, and so you have the nominal wages going down, and then you have the purchasing power going down much more rapidly than the government says. And I'm wondering, is this the reason that monetary velocity is remaining so low, people have to hang on to everything they've got just to make ends meet? Well, that's, that's, that's part of it, but there's an, another element of it, uh, which is <clears throat> there is an exception to the uh, income driving the uh, consumption, and that is um, you can get temporary relief through debt expansion. Yeah. Borrowing money and then making up the shortfall on your living standards um, yeah. And by, by that uh, that approach, uh, Greenspan saw this problem uh, from an income standpoint back when he was Fed chairman decades ago, and he he knew that this meant a, a generally a, a, a relatively stagnant economy going forward. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he actively promoted debt expansion, and we saw a period of debt being built built upon debt. Consumers uh, went overboard. And they consumed, and that <clears throat> was the debt expansion that that that, that drove the economy. Um, as as you came into the crisis in two thousand eight, and you had the the the, the debt collapse, um, all of a sudden that uh, extra debt that the uh, or extra liquidity that consumers could get through borrowing dried up. So what you have right now is a circumstance where people not only have they lack the income growth, uh, they're being hit by. Um, uh, not, not not being able to keep up with the purchasing power of the dollar, and they don't have the ability to borrow money the way they uh, that they, they used to. And until that is addressed, until you see that shift, uh, you have no hope of a sustainable upturn in the economy. And that's why we've not had an upturn in the economy. And when you get to the velocity of the money, which is uh, definitionally, it's the uh, Rate of turnover of the uh, money money supply in the in the uh, broad economy mm-hmm. um, over over the period of a year uh, that that has to be viewed in the context of the of the money supply growth um, and there are a variety of issues with that. To start with, the Federal Reserve stopped publishing M three, which was their broadest money supply measure back in two thousand six. And um, so we, um, we've continued to estimate it basically using the Federal Reserve's numbers. Mm-hmm. You have three. You have the three general measures: M1, which is basically the cash in circulation and checking accounts; M2, which is 
M1 plus your your savings accounts and small-time deposits and uh, money market funds, and M3, which is M2, plus the large institutional uh, uh, money funds and uh, large uh, CDs. Yep. Um, that that M3 is not being not being counted anymore. But if you look at yep. if you look at the velocity with M2, which is the broadest measure, you'll see that's been declining. Yeah. With M3, it actually has been picking up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the reason for it is that M2, the growth in M2 reflects some flight from the M3 accounts into the lower level accounts out of the, I mean, the large uh, time deposits with interest rates so low. People have not been um, renewing them as much as they they might have. So that's that's that that's slowed down. Um, right. But but there's also an element here in terms of the uh, the weakness in the economy, <clears throat> and that is. Um, what you have to keep in mind here is that back in 2008, the system came to the brink of collapse. The, 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 these people in Washington were not kidding when they suggested that. Um, and I can understand very simply, and I, I can't say I would necessarily have done differently at the time, as opposed to facing uh, outright collapse and uh, economic financial catastrophe up front, that I wouldn't do what they did, but what they did was they uh, created every dollar they needed, they spent every dollar they needed, they went, they guaranteed whatever they had to do to keep the system from mm-hmm. imploding, they did. None of what they did addressed the fundamental issues. It was just, let's uh, let, let's stop the bleeding, and it, it moved the problems down the road. Now we're down the road. Uh, the economy has not recovered. The banking system still is in trouble, and that's why you have this ongoing uh, easing by the Fed. It isn't that the Fed's trying to stimulate the economy. They yeah. can't stimulate the economy. They never have been. They can always contract the economy uh, yeah. by tightening up on money, and they can always uh, uh, create inflation. But it's very difficult for them to um, um, to grow the economy. stimulate the economy. Yeah. So that this nonsense, oh, we're going to wait till the you know uh, <clears throat> unemployment rate gets so low. They know the economy's not that strong. The reason, the reason the Fed's doing what it's doing, very simply, is that the Fed's primary function in life is to protect the banking system. Right. This is, this is, this is a, a private corporation owned by the banks. Absolutely. And they, they keep the banks afloat. They keep them solvent. They're, what, what they're doing with the easing is they're flooding the, that system with liquidity, helping these guys stay afloat and make money. They want to keep doing that as long as they can because the banking system still is not healthy. But it's not politically feasible to say, "Hey, we're you know we're we're out there, we're doing all this to support the banking system." Yeah. Instead, where they know that the public recognizes that the economy hasn't recovered, they're saying, "Oh, we're you know we're going to keep doing this until until the right. economy recovers." The economy is not about to recover. They're not about to uh, uh, cut back on their on their easing. Um, this is this is jawboning, which is one of Bernanke's policies. Yeah, I'm wondering, John. I'm just asking you all this talk about uh, about tapering and all this sort of thing. Do you think, in uh, in part, it's meant to keep the markets off balance? That is, to keep people from betting in one direction. Well, that that's um, that, that well is as uh, part of it because they know there will be a when when they lean towards the tapering, they know that's going to be bad for the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they also recognize that there are a lot of there's a lot of legitimate criticism out there, 
and that this is a way of trying to contain the, 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 the critics. If it looks like they're going to do something, they're talking about it, said, yes, we need to do this, we know that, and you know, so the, the, the critics sit back a little bit, but then the economy is worse than, uh, than everyone expects, and it continues, and it continues. That there's no way they can, they can uh, uh, get out of this, they, they, and they know it. Um, they've locked themselves into this. Uh, it doesn't have a happy ending. I'm looking for this to evolve eventually into a hyperinflation. I know you are, John, and so I want to get to that point with the few minutes we have left. You, uh, uh, you are putting out, you're updating on a fairly regular basis your hyperinflation look um, outlook. Now, uh, if we don't get velocity increasing, do can we have hyperinflation without consumers spending money? Oh, sure. I mean, you can add, how, you, how does you, that work? You, you, can, you can have inflation um, with a weak economy as well as a strong economy, but with a strong economy, uh, which is really the inflation you want to see if you're going to have it, you've got strong demand out there, not enough goods, so people mm-hmm. have to start producing more and they hire people. Right. Uh, the, the, the one you don't want to see is what we're seeing, which is where the Fed has uh, worked to debase the dollar, and in doing so, it has spiked oil prices. And, and the higher oil prices and you know, reflect very quickly into gasoline prices. Now, if you look at the volatility in the gasoline prices, that pretty much explains volatility we've seen in the day-to-day inflation reporting. But we have not had a massive decline in the dollar yet. That's coming. That, what the Fed is doing here, what the Fed has set up, um, and, and uh, I'll add on top of that what our, our government is doing from a fiscal standpoint in terms of threatening the long-term solvency of, of the United States government. Um, both both factors, the Fed and and the budget negotiations, um, if they continue in the existing uh, uh, directions, are very shortly going to lead lead to a, a massive decline in the U.S. dollar, which will be very inflationary. It you'll start to see um, a, a big spike in oil prices in dollar terms, um, and that'll feed in, into the economy. You'll see um, global holders of the U.S. dollars. Uh, uh, starting to dump the dollars to sell to sell the dollar denominated paper. Uh, David Stockman was mentioning the uh, um, how a lot of the uh, foreign central banks no longer are are, are buying the, uh, uh, the the bonds. Treasuries, yeah. The treasuries. Uh, well, guess what? The Fed is uh, so far they've uh, they've bought more than the net issuance of the uh, gross federal uh, uh, treasury debt this year, and they're monetizing that. As yeah. long as they're yeah. doing that, they're 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 helping to. Um, uh, fund the uh, uh, treasury, but again, that that doesn't work long term because what happens is the rest of the world recognizes that the Fed is debasing the dollar. That was a whole concept of quantitative easing, and right. as as that selling mounts, um, not only is it going to be um, very r- rapid from an inflation standpoint. You, again, you're going to see the dumping of the, uh, the, the the dollar denominated paper, such as the U.S. Treasuries. That gets into the markets. Interest rates spike, and the markets collapse. Or, guess what? The Fed intervenes, and which is what they're going to do. And all of a sudden, you're going to see a, a big spike in the money supply, as roughly twelve trillion dollars worth of uh, near liquid assets are flushed into the U.S. system that are otherwise being held outside the market right now. And, and and that's a weakness of the current money supply measures. Is that when you look at the the numbers, that's all in, in, the, in the domestic market. But um, you don't get too much of a consideration of the large overhang of dollars outside the market. 
John, let me ask you. We've only got a couple of minutes left here. I, I want to ask you about the the real interest rates. You know, uh, you heard David Stockman talk yep. about his his view that the bull market in long dated treasuries is over. Yep. Uh, that we've seen the highs in the market, uh, but you're a hyperinflationist. David tends to lean towards the deflation side, but. Uh, do we get hyperinflation? If we get your hyperinflation, are we going to see real rates of interest positive? Are we going to are we going to see real rates of interest uh, rising? Or can because it well, seems to me we during the 1970s, for example, we had high rates of inflation, we had high interest rates, but the real rates of inflation were negative. Mm-hmm. Do you see negative real rates? And that would I would think would be very bullish for gold as well. Well, we we have negative real rates now. Right, um, for sure, and and in using your inflation numbers, well, they're look, really negative. They, they are really negative, and uh, uh, generally that becomes inflationary of its own nature. Um, but the uh, uh, what 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 happens here is you get into a hyperinflation, um, is that uh, the the rates just will not be able to keep up with the, the interest rates will not be able to keep up with the uh, the pace of inflation, and a mm-hmm. true hyperinflation. Uh, you get extraordinarily rapid change. A quick example from the Weimar Republic, uh, you go into a nice restaurant, have an expensive bottle of wine. The next morning, that empty bottle was worth more scrap glass than it was as fine, white, fine wine the night before. When you get into no, that type that, of a that, circum- circumstance, your market's effectively cease to function. When you get to that point though John it it doesn't last very long. That would be sort of at the um, at the peak of a of a hyperinflation at Winded. I mean you're going straight up off the chart. The the rate of change is just exponential and it's straight up, right? And th- and those it, things well, usually it, it end can, in it can it can it can last months and my goodness you look at uh, Zimbabwe, they had it uh, lasting for years. Yeah. The, the reason they were able to do that though the economy function. People work. They paid their rent. They bought their groceries. They had a black market in U.S. dollars. They had a backup. They'd get paid in the Zimbabwe dollars. They'd immediately go um, exchange it for uh, U.S. dollars, which were hard assets for them. And then that, then they could function. If we get a hyperinflation here, we don't have a backup. I mean, what would we be a backup? Would be gold. And Ron Paul tried to get uh, uh, gold and silver uh, introduced a, a, a bill. Uh, uh, and, and Congress that would 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 have made them uh, monetary would allow would, it would allow gold and silver to to compete with with paper money yeah and with, with, you know, with, with tax free exchange we don't have a backup and no, that's that's, that's what could make our hyperinflation a lot worse than anything that has been seen in the world in you know the last century. Well, John, we are out of time, unfortunately. I don't. I know that what we do have, though, that Zimbabwe doesn't have, is a military that's very, very powerful, and we're fixing to go to war in Syria. I'm wondering to what extent we have John Perkins coming on the show next week. I'm sure he'll have some opinions about what that's all about. But it seems to me also that as long as we have a military machine that can basically force other countries to use the dollar, that it may be can, can be prolonged longer than some of us expect. Well, I would certainly expect there will be efforts at intervention and great manipulation here. But yeah, the, well, the that's pretty much the a given. Fundament, the fundamentals are there. Uh, the government is committed to $80 trillion, spending $80 trillion that it doesn't have. If it doesn't bring Social Security and Medicare into balance and, and otherwise balance the uh, deficit, um, th- there is no way of escaping hyperinflation. 
Well, John, I hope you're wrong. I'm afraid you might be right, and that's why we have you on here. I think we need to try to face reality as it is. We're also uh, going to be talking to Frank Holmes. We do have to go to a break now. I want to thank you again for being with me, uh, John, and we'll look to talk to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. But we do want to try to keep a bit optimistic, and we're going to talk to Frank Holmes after the break. And Frank will probably have some ideas about where to where to put money uh, to try to preserve your capital against, against these uncertain times. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Frank Holmes. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Frank Holmes. And Frank is uh, well-known to most everybody that listens to this show, I think, but he is the uh, the CEO of uh, the U.S. Global Group of Funds. Uh, and Frank is going to be speaking at the Toronto Resource Investment Conference uh, coming up on September 12th and 13th. That's at... Uh, uh, the Sheraton Center in Toronto, uh, the Sheraton Center Toronto Hotel. Welcome, Frank. It's good to have you back. It's great to be back. You know, uh, you you have written a lot of things, uh, and your website, we should mention, your, uh, and I don't have it in front of me, it's U.S. Global, what is the website, Frank? USFunds.com. USFunds.com, and I would suggest people go there because there's some really, a lot of really interesting things there, and I want to talk get Frank to talk about a few of the articles that are up there now. But before we do, Frank, you're going to be speaking in Toronto. Can you give our listeners some sense of, of what you might be talking about? Well, I'm going to co- try to comment on, on the sort of state of the union on, res- on resources and what the demand drivers are mm-hmm. uh, as a whole, uh, the bigger picture, and much to do about the negativity that seems to focus around on China and uh, it's, and I'll try to highlight some of the positive aspects that when we're looking at China. Um, and I'll also comment on uh, what's taking place in India when it comes to gold. Uh, what's important to understand that, uh, which I always comment on the love trade, which is 50% of all the demand for gold, 
and that starts every summer and runs the Chinese New Year. Uh, so we're in that, that mode now, and uh, I think gold would be substantially higher if you didn't have uh, the sort of weak policies coming out of India trying to stop the demand for gold. And I, just don't, I believe the heart is much bigger than what the government's trying to do. Uh, but I will comment on that, and uh, I think it's important for investors to understand that 50% of this demand for gold is not just the fear of monetizing of debt and, and the confiscation of assets, etc., but truly people buy gold and have simple gold jewelry with 10 to 15% markups, and as the GDP per capita rises in emerging markets, we see nothing but continuous buying from this 50% of the equation, so it's important to track. And then I'll comment on, on sort of some of the things we know from the capital markets um, that they're broken. And you're seeing uh, this in, um, in Canada, and you're seeing with this hyperactive trading, high-frequency trading. Uh, and I'll try to comment that, that how it's affecting the confidence in the capital markets. Uh, and in particular, I think it's affecting the junior space. Uh, but if companies have good CEOs, good geologists that they're exploring and, or, or very cost conscientious executives who are running an operation, um, that they're the companies you have to really focus on. And, uh, and I try to highlight on some of those components, uh, that we see that, um, when stocks get pushed out of the GDXJ, uh, it's amazing how that's being gamed by some uh, rogue hedge funds that uh, they know if they push it down on, on, on one day of the quarter uh, below a, a market cap valuation of $75 million, it gets pushed out and then they lean in and shorting it and uh, that those some of those stocks end become exceptionally attractive values because they're just basically forced down. Mm. And uh, what takes place with that? Uh, so what's a negative and how do you turn that into your positive? Uh, right. And this, that's what I'm going to highlight. So you'll be talking about that stuff in, uh, in Toronto on the 12th and 13th. So uh, that is, uh, people should really go to the website of, um, of the Cambridge House website and, and uh, check it out and, and go there because Frank is, is just one of uh, many, a number of really outstanding speakers. Eric Sprott is going to be there. I've noticed uh, uh, Ned Goodman will be there among some of the pros, uh, lots of other people there as well. Uh, Eric Koff and John Kaiser on this show frequently, David Franklin of, of Sprott Asset Management. Lots of people there. Yours truly will be there as well. Um, let's talk a little bit more, Frank, if you would, about the um, uh, the Indian trade for gold, the love trade, as you call it. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, it seemed to me for the longest time that the um, – that I mean, Larry Parks and others make the point that, in fact, the lower the gold price goes, the more it gets taken off for jewelry. Do you buy that argument? Uh, yes, I, I think that, um, and I also see that some uh, small bars, like uh, one mm-hmm. ounce to five ounce wafers uh, and ten ounce wafers of silver, uh, mm-hmm. were gobbled up with a big correction because the average person in the street recognizes that, that they have attractive value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, uh, but but what you're saying is basically fifty percent of the gold that is taken off the markets is for the love trade. Is that what I hear That's you? That's correct. Heard? Yeah, and, and, and but that's pretty steady, though. So, if gold prices rise and they go to new highs, does that then take less? So, less of it goes for that, and more of it goes for monetary reasons. Well, when gold hit nineteen hundred dollars, Jay, there was a mm-hmm. um, the stars were aligned for two reasons. One, uh, one was the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar had just been downgraded right. uh, by the rating services. Two. 
which is a fear trade, uh, because of all the debt levels, etc. And B was that Obama was fighting Congress to lift the debt ceiling. Right. So all that, that fear, trepidation, lack of safety in the U.S. dollar and excessive spending, etc., that, that really exaggerate the element of the fear. And mm-hmm. then on top of that, uh, the GDP per capita of China and India was more robust then than it is today. And two, uh, with that, it was, they were beginning, it was in the summer. It was in the summer when Ramadan starts, which is the first religious holiday that starts this sort of season of giving uh, gold as, as a gift. And when you had the love trade show up and you had the fear trade show up, gold hit 1900. Uh, well, that, that cer- certainly seems reasonable now. Do, we, do you think we've seen the bottom? Have we bottomed out in gold? Yeah, we could have. I mean, there's no doubt it looks like it could be because you're seeing many brokers shutting down. UBS Canada is shutting down. Uh, Staples shutting down. Uh, many small brokerage firms are shutting down. So you're, you're seeing that, um, uh, that sort of overall formation of capital model, the catalysts uh, that are out there, people telling a story and, and getting excited, that's all changing. And, uh, and usually that takes place at a bottom. And the huge write-downs, Jay, with the mining companies. Uh, oh, you know, man, global, yeah. We feel it. Oh, I bet you do. You know, while we're on that topic, tell our listeners about, you have, you have two funds, I believe, that, are, that buy gold mining companies. And uh, what are those? Well, we have uh, World Precious Minerals, which uh, will take more of a risk in going into the junior space. Uh, it'll has up 15% into uh, the small cap, micro cap stocks. And um, so we have geologists and staff that kick the tires and, and model mm-hmm. these assets. And the other one is, uh, which is the uh, first no-load gold fund in America, and that's U.S. Uh, gold shares. And that is um, only producers. So when investors want to make that distinction, they go to U.S. ERX, UserX, which only buys gold producers. Okay, that's, uh, again, you can go to your website uh, and all the funds, and not just gold, you have a lot of other things. I want to just ask you about a couple of those as well. But So, you know, if people don't want to be involved, don't have the time, the expertise, the desire to research on their own, it's an excellent way to go as to uh, if you want to uh, buy the, the juniors, you've got an option there, and you want to buy the producers, you've got an option there as well with uh, mutual funds. Uh, Frank, uh, tell us about some of the other funds that you have because you're involved in, in Europe. You invest in Europe. You're very active in Asia, uh, which leads me also to an article that you have posted on your website challenging a long-held assumption about commodities. But uh, what are some of the other funds? How can people invest in Asia, for example? What do you have there? Well, we have a China fund, uh, which uh, is uh, uh, it's companies that are growing in top line, bottom line, cash flow, and paying a dividend. Uh, and we have uh, Eastern European Fund, uh, which is which is 50% uh, relates to the index that has to be every year is related to Russia. So we have slightly less weighting in that. Um, and so it's in it's in places like uh, Poland, Czech, uh, in as I said, Russia earlier. Turkey is, is another country. Uh, it's going under a lot of uh, political issues right now, but the economy is still pretty strong. And I think that um, they're the top engineers for uh, the whole region of the Mediterranean, uh, Turkish companies and big manufacturers. Uh, and so they continue to uh, show great growth. Mm-hmm. And we look uh, at some of the gold mining companies like Eldorado Gold and Almas Gold has had some challenges getting in there, but Eldorado Gold had it first, but the, a good portion of the low-cost production comes out of Turkey. 
you also have a, a money market fund or two that people can store money in for a short period of time too, if they want, and they can go from one fund to the next. I believe, Frank. I mean, you can, can. you can do some can. you can do some and, switching, and uh, they can do that. So it's uh, uh, what's important is that is that I think for investors is we have a short term fund too, uh, short term tax free, which mm-hmm. is a much much higher yield. Because the money market funds, you know, even with this rate lift in rates, uh, Jay, uh, recently this huge spike, nothing's happened in the money fund space. I know. And repos are still a couple basis points. And a lot of that has to do with all the regulatory uh, pronouncements that came back uh, several years ago with Frank Dodd. And uh, there's been articles written regarding the ability for banks and brokers to digest this. And so there's no real true dynamic big repo market. Uh, so you have to step out on the yield curve to get in a higher yield. But if you start stepping out five years or 10 years, you have to experience a lot of volatility. So we've focused on the one-year to two-year range and so much less volatility. And in fact, we make the NAV on the near-term tax-free $2. So mm-hmm. uh, not a dollar, uh, where his money funds are, and not $10. So it has very low penny volatility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you basically get the equivalent of a 10-year bond for uh, on a tax-equivalent basis, a yield basis, for an average maturity of less than two years. Um, okay, so... We have a couple of minutes left here, Frank. Um, talk to us about this article challenging a long-held assumption about commodities. Uh, it, it has to do with China and the, you know, the, the reliance on commodity prices on on Chinese on the Chinese economy. What well, What do you? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You, so your question. Yeah. So what is uh, the gist of this article? So how dependent are we on China for commodity prices? Well, I think it's quite easy to take a look at the data that 40% of all demand is, is China. Mm-hmm. So they are the, um, um, the big 800-pound gorilla. Um, but where the opportunities lie is that in the U.S. also that the infrastructure here is still lagging, uh, and they're going, to, they're going to have to do a massive overhaul of, of the electrical grid to deal with uh, the electrical needs in America, and that's like $20 billion a year. Uh, that, uh, sorry, 80 billion a year that has to be spent is the number to enjoy big savings. So I think that, um, uh, we're going to probably see waves that politicians to create jobs are going to, and this next wave, uh, is going to have, you know, some truly focused infrastructure spending. And I think that, um, what's important regarding China for investors is to understand that China actually sells more to Europe. And, uh, and so as Europe's PMI, you've seen the one month which we track over the three months, so the trend is your friend, you've seen the, the purchasing manufacturers index turn positive in Germany and then France is very important because there's such, there's such substantial trade between China. Now China's exporting products to Europe, uh, because the economy's getting better there, is then going to create jobs and sustainable jobs in China. Uh, so I think that they're important parts from the manufacturing sector. Okay. Well, that's uh, very good, Frank. I think that uh, you know you you really do give your uh, your um, your investors a lot to think about. There's a lot of great information uh, at the U.S. Global Investors uh, website, um, and I look forward to seeing you in uh, Toronto and listening to your speech up there as well. And I hope our listeners who are 
living in and around the Toronto area, at least, uh, and if you're able to get there, go there and listen to Frank and the other speakers at the conference and, and also go to uh, U.S. Global Investors' uh, website. I uh, hope I have that right, Frank. What is it? U.S. Global... U.S. Funds, like money, usfunds.com. U.S. Funds.com. If you Google Google it, of course, you'll find it, and it's just a lot of great information that's that's free there. A lot of uh, Frank, I think you write something almost every week there, and uh, there's, there's a lot of things there. So we have thank about you very forty thousand readers in, in seventy countries. Oh, okay, it gives you an idea. So your uh, your your words are being followed by a lot of people, and I want to thank you for sharing them with us again today, Frank. Uh, very good to have you with us. Thank you. All right, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some uh, thoughts about today's show and also um, some a word about next week's guests uh, who I think you'll find very interesting. Don't go away. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I just uh, want to give you a few of my thoughts uh, about today's show. First of all, with respect to the Toronto show that I mentioned and we just talked about with Frank Holmes, uh, just to give you an idea of some of the other invest, uh, some of the other speakers that will be there, Eric Coffin is on this show uh, frequently. He'll be there. Uh, who else? We've had Eric Sprott is going to be there. Frank Holmes, who we just talked to, will be there. Uh, Tom Calandra, Lawrence Ralston, David Morgan, uh, Barry, uh, Michael Barry will be there. Uh, Danelle Park, uh, who's been on this show as well. Ned Goodman of Dundee Corporation, of uh, a big name investor. Adrian Day will be there. Uh, Peter Spina, Greg McCoach, Keith Schaefer, uh, Chris Barry, that's Michael Barry's son. 
David Franklin of Sprout Asset Investment, uh, Sprout Asset Management. Uh, lots of good speakers, lots of very interesting people uh, will be there, and lots of uh, quite a few companies. And I think with the gold markets picking up a bit, we might expect to see a few more people, uh, a few more companies there than we would have seen a few weeks ago. Uh, the gold uh, price was up sharply again today. I see that the bond market was uh, was up. Uh, the equity market, the Dow Jones, closed down 173. If I'm if my screen is correct, so we've had a very difficult day in the equity markets, a very strong day in the gold markets, very strong day in the bond markets. We talked to David Stockman, who thinks the bull market in bonds is over. A lot of people have thought that for some time. John Williams thinks that's the case as well, probably for two different reasons. I think David more because he thinks of a, a collapse in the uh, solvency of the United States. Williams thinks it's because of hyperinflation. I don't know which one uh, is going to prove to be right. I think either uh, is a possibility. Uh, but whatever it is, uh, we've seemingly got problems ahead. On the On the other hand, I would also just say that many people have been predicting the end of the bull market in bonds for a long, long time. And many of people have taken a short position in the bond market for a long time uh, and have been wrong. Uh, and as I look at the chart of the bull market in bonds, uh, I'm not completely convinced that the bull market is over. It seems like it should be, uh, and there may be some reasons to think it is. But uh, technically, if you look at the chart and draw a line, um, you know, from the the rising bond prices or the declining uh, yields, uh, we haven't broken trend yet. Going back those thirty years that David Stockman was talking about, so I'm not con- completely convinced uh, that it's over um, and uh, that the bull market is over. It seems to me that one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that this monstrous military-industrial complex. Uh, that throws its weight around the world. And as John Perkins, uh, who's going to be on next week, uh, has suggested in the past that one of the reasons we go to war is to force countries to continue to use our U.S. dollar and keep the dollar as a world's reserve currency. As long as that is the case, we can continue to print dollars and use those dollars to confiscate wealth from various countries around the world. And uh, uh, when I say we collectively, the United States and our corporations, uh, and in a way, all of us that live in the United States uh, are part of and are benefactors of this uh, this empire. We weren't supposed to be an empire. We we're supposed to be a republic, but we are an empire, and we're going around uh, creating and being involved in wars, changing regimes. Uh, we uh, espouse democracy until somebody's elected that we don't like, and then we back people who uh, stage coup d'etats to get rid of the uh, the people that the pe- uh, the uh, governors, the governments that the people have elected. So much for our true belief in democracy. I say that's uh, that's just a reason to get people to go to war. The lofty ideas of democracy or a republic of freedom and liberty is supposed to be what we're about. And yet we find as the more we go to war overseas, as Ron Paul suggested, the reason they came over here is because we're over there. I believe every bit of that is true. And so as we continue to pound the living daylights and kill hundreds of thousands of people overseas, believe you me, we are creating enemies. There's blowback and people are coming over here and and we are less safe as a result of it. And as we're attacked over here, then our liberties have to be taken away. We have to be spied upon. We have to be coerced and we have to be told uh, that we can't be free, that we can't really uh, say what we believe and we have to, uh, and we can't back politicians that we, uh, that we believe should be uh, our elected officials. So it has to, so the, the policies have to be and are in place 
to serve the ruling elite, whoever that is. And uh, I think uh, Marcus Cicero was actually absolutely right when he talked about the enemy from within. Eisenhower warned us about it. We've talked about it on this show today. Well, next week, our special guest will be John Perkins. He's the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Uh, and Ellen Brown will be with me here to talk about how Elliot Spitzer is Wall Street's worst nightmare and why it is likely that they framed Elliot Spitzer. So you want to know uh, why it's dangerous that the government is spying on us? Well, if there's a government official that wants to go after the banks and wants to make sure that the bad guys don't get the upper hand, well, guess what? The bad guys have information on Elliot Spitzer. They can leak that out to the public and get rid of the man. That's what, Elliot, uh, what Ellen Brown is suggesting. She'll be here to talk about that, John Perkins as well. Uh, and so those are our two main guests next week. Daniel McAdams, I, I hope, will be with me as well. Uh, I do want to thank uh, our uh, staff for making this uh, uh, this uh, show logistically possible, Tacey Trump, uh, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America business channel. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.